Hello, everybody. You're listening to the Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 409, All Things Super Bowl 56. Big Chillians, and welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. You're here because you want to know everything Super Bowl 56, and we've got you covered. Eddie, oh. how's it going? <laughs> Pretty well. I mean, listeners won't know this, obviously, but this is a very different recording time for us. Normally, it's late at night for me and mid-afternoon for you, and this time around, it's mid-afternoon for you and kind of late morning, mid-afternoon for me and late morning for you, so... We'll see if the listeners will be able to see a difference in energy levels from either one of us. Yeah, I'm a pretty good morning person. I'm someone who can like roll out of bed and within 10 minutes just be fully functional and ready to do whatever needs to be done. Not that this is the case. I've been up for several hours, but I mean, it's it's 10 o'clock. So if I had just rolled out of bed 10 minutes ago, it would be pretty pathetic. But yeah, you know. it's not super. It's not like we're recording at 5 a.m. your time. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> I could do it if we had to. But yeah, no, things are all right. Things are all right. Weekend for me, I guess, is about to kick off in in a couple hours. As mentioned on the back end of the last podcast, got a friend of the podcast, Ollie, arriving soon in Paris. So four nights of being out at bars and drinking and eating unhealthy food is about to commence. Hopefully wrapping things off with a decent Super Bowl. Now, I I mean, obviously the correct answer to this is going to be the Royal Ascot week, but besides Royal Ascot, is this one of your more favorite kind of weekendish adventures? Because this is this is the norm, right? You have people come to Paris every year to watch the Super Bowl with you. So I'm assuming this is do you get excited when this starts to roll around? Yeah, it's usually a fun weekend. Normally it's three people, so Ollie, Jake, and Sam, obviously former co-host Sam. Sam's Ooh. already <laughs> Sam's already in Paris, so he will be present for some of the activities. Hopefully, I guess, but, we hope. Yeah, but normally I mean, he quit. I he quit on the podcast. Who's to say he's not going to quit on you for the Super Bowl? <laughs> yeah, it's true. But he and I mean, let's not forget, super fan, super Bengals, super fan, Bengals fan. You know, like this is this is going to be a huge weekend for him. He Sweet Lift Burrow was his dream boy, so there's extra incentive for him to be out on Sunday night, just living out years of toil, being a Bengals fan, watching them go through, you know, losing seasons. And all of a sudden, here we are, all of that hard work paid off and he's going to get to enjoy them watching the Super Bowl. Or he just decided he liked them 12 months ago and it's been a sweet ride since then and he probably hasn't watched any of their playoff games. Who knows? Speaking of people quitting on something, though, I mean, before we get into the Super Bowl itself, I guess it's worth touching on some other drama in the NFL, which is Kyler Murray appearing to quit on the Arizona Cardinals. For those who aren't aware, a couple of days ago, he completely cleaned his Instagram, removed any image or association with the Arizona Cardinals, unfollowed everything to do with the Arizona Cardinals. A really weird move from a player who doesn't really seem to have any easy way out. Like it's very difficult to see what the end game is from his perspective here. Yeah, and it's very difficult to understand what the real issues are. It's not as if 
this has been like a Deshaun Watson situation where he's kind of made it public that he's very unhappy with everything going on. And it's been a very long, long drawn out process. I mean, this kind of, I don't think if you had asked anyone, you know, like, Hey, is Kyler Murray having issues with the Cardinals? No one really would have said anything. Maybe people within the organization or his close group of people, but otherwise to the public eye, nothing was going on. And now all of a sudden he just completely wipes out the Cardinals from everything on all of his social media accounts. And, you know, seems like he's very unhappy for what I don't really know. Um, And it's really tough because here's a player who, yes, I think is really good, but as we discuss all the time with Kyler Murray, he has injury issues and he's injury prone and he is somewhat unreliable in that sense is that you never know what you're going to get. And then if he gets injured, then you have to play with a 75% Kyler Murray and, and limit some of the stuff that he's really good at doing because you don't want him to further get injured. So I, I, I don't, I didn't understand where this was coming from. It was kind of strange. And I mean, maybe it's just kind of, he got a little overblown or got in his head a little bit and it'll kind of calm down, but it'll be unfortunate if this is a, two weeks from now, I have to be traded situation like the Deshaun Watson one. That would be, that would be really unfortunate and it, 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 it wouldn't look good. Well, it's also just difficult. Where's he going to get traded to? You know, there's not that many good teams in need of a quarterback. And then on top of that, you have a number of high profile free agent quarterbacks already on the market. I mean, we don't know where Aaron Rodgers is going to go yet. You know, there is the Deshaun Watson situation hanging out there as well. There is the possibility. I mean, we obviously touched on Tom Brady retiring. Tom Brady's statements since retiring is that he kind of maybe is retired. So you also have Tom Brady being out there as a possibility for if you're a contender, which I think probably the only one that might fit the bill from Tom Brady's perspective is the 49ers. But yeah, did you already read that? That because he's retired, they can trade for his rights. So they can trade Jimmy G and something else likely to the Bucks for the rights of Tom Brady if he were to come out of retirement, which would be an awesome move. I would love to see the it. Gronk situation. I mean, that's what the Bucks did with Gronk, right? They and then he, yeah, and then he yeah. unretired and became a player. So, yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like necessarily it's. You know, the, if you're the Niners, you do feel like you're a quarterback away from winning the Super Bowl. If you think that Trey Lance is still a year away from being that person, then maybe it does make sense to bring Tom Brady in for a year, especially if you think that Tom Brady, I mean, Tom I, Brady can also help Trey Lance to develop as a quarterback is a, a whole nother issue. I mean, that's what I was going to say. Even if you do think Trey Lance is ready, it would be so beneficial to still bring in Brady and have Trey Lance, now that he's not a rookie, get a full year of what it takes to be an elite quarterback in the NFL, day in, day out, practice in, practice out. You know, like it would be awesome for Trey Lance. Even if even if you told me right now he could win them 13 games, I would still say I would rather bring in Brady and give him one more year of learning the system and learning how to be an elite quarterback. And then letting him loose, I like it would be an awesome move for the Niners. Yeah, I mean the 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 only thing you have to weigh up is if you do think that Trey Lance has some significant potential, then is this just a massive blow to his confidence? So already having had the year where they didn't clearly trust him down 
the final games of the season when Jimmy G was injured and Jimmy G got his spot back. So already you've had, okay, year one, we didn't really trust you. If you then bring in Tom Brady, I think, and only the 49ers and Trey Lance would be able to answer this, is really having a sense of, is he going to accept that this is really part of his, his future is still very much as the next quarterback of the 49ers, but this is to try and help him develop and to ease that transition period versus him taking this as an indication of the fact that they don't really believe in him and that eventually he'll they'll just move on to someone else. So I think that's the only thing that has to be weighed up. Yeah. In the case of Kyler Murray, I mean, it's just difficult to see the team he could go to where he would become a contender. I mean, the Cardinals are a good team, as we touched on over the course of the season. Whenever they're fully healthy, they're pretty much as good as anyone. So it's difficult to see where he could go where the situation itself is better, aside from if he just doesn't believe in the head coach anymore. But then that's weird because Cliff Kingsbury was his guy and, you know, coming out of college, that was supposed to be one of the advantages of bringing Cliff Kingsbury in. But, I mean, the only other alternative here is he thought long and hard about whether or not he was going to play baseball or football coming out. Obviously, the Oakland A's drafted him. The only move I could see here is he's decided he's going to baseball. Now, given the fact that baseball is currently not going on and there's no there's no <laughs> sign of an agreement being reached between the players union and the owners so again doesn't seem like the smartest timing if you if your decision is that you want to play baseball instead of football it's just it's crazy all around i just don't know what his his goals are yeah it's just really kind of out of left field no baseball pun intended but um yeah i i didn't i didn't really understand it and I'm sure we'll learn more after the Super Bowl and people have nothing else to cover and then they'll move on to that. So, yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see how that progresses for sure. It's always good. You always know in the buildup in that two-week period before the, the Super Bowl, you always get a little bit of drama. So you had the Brady retirement. That was the big news. And then now you got Kyler, Kyler Murray kind of trying to steal the limelight a couple days before the Super Bowl. It's always interesting to see who who comes out and tries to get a little bit of attention right before the the biggest game of the season. Well, I mean, if you look at it from a media perspective, maybe they're trying to build up some some controversy because overall, from what's been said, is that this could be one of the lowest-watched Super Bowls in recent history with the lowest seeds to ever advance to the Super Bowl with both being number four seeds in the playoffs and that you have two fan bases that one is a strong fan base in a sense that they are dedicated fans in Cincinnati, but overall a relatively small fan base for a state that probably likes Ohio state football more if they had to choose one or the other. And then the Los Angeles Rams who are the most fair weather fans in the world and had their home stadium turned red when they played the Niners. So there's not a lot of, interests outside of maybe your dedicated LA and Cincinnati fans. So this could be the media's way of drumming up some, some controversy to yeah. hype up the NFL. I mean, I do always <laughs> think it feels like every year we're getting told, you know, how the NFL has viewing problems in the Super Bowl itself. I feel like I'm sure we'll get to a couple weeks past the Super Bowl and they'll tell us that it still broke every record. 
it just feels like that's kind of what ends up happening. And people will say, oh, I'm not that interested in the Rams against the Bengals. I'm not going to watch this, but what else are you going to do on Super Bowl Sunday? You know? So I think we kind of come into this and, and maybe some people have other interests, whether it's a network that doesn't have the rights to the Super Bowl this year, trying to encourage people to, hey, you know what? The Super Bowl is really not that good this year versus just the reality is people are just going to tune in. Even it also has, I guess, one of the most heavily anticipated halftime shows in a long time. So it has that going for it. So is it? I think people want to see the like just the number of high profile artists they're going to be performing at halftime simultaneously, or at least over the course of the show. So do you want to tell the listeners in case someone didn't know who's performing at halftime? So it's Eminem, Mary J. Blige, Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre. And Kendrick Lamar, yeah, will all be performing. Yeah, I mean the Kendrick Lamar f- feels a little bit out of place. It just feels like they kind of randomly threw in it, a more recent person just to just to kind of so like younger people. Maybe they couldn't get Notorious B.I.G. He he refused to do it, so <laughs> they had to fill that fifth spot. He's hard to reach. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so that was I have a lot of random facts about the Super Bowl, and that was one of them that maybe probably most people know, but maybe some don't, is that the artists do not get paid to play in the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl covers all of the production and all of the staging and everything like that, but the artists themselves do not get any money for actually performing at the Super Bowl halftime show. Yeah, but then every single artist who performs at the halftime show goes number one with something like the day after. Even like even last yeah. year, you saw Sha- Shakira and J-Lo had songs from yep. the early 2000s suddenly be i mean i i would be interested in seeing her spotify was up like 277 yeah i, I don't know how the econ- the week i don't after. know how the economics of that works from an artist's perspective if suddenly being heavily streamed on spotify really makes a difference to you you know i, I don't know compared with in the old days where you might actually have a legitimate number one single as a result of having been on or number one album as a result of having been on been the Super Bowl halftime show. So I don't know how the economics, because it would seem to me, weirdly enough, the production costs of the halftime show are definitely increasing year on year compared with, you know, if I think back to, you know, notable halftime shows from kind of our, I mean, I guess the most famous halftime show is the Prince halftime show with him performing in the rain and, you know, the production value and cost of that didn't seem tremendously high. That was just him kind of playing a rock concert in a stadium. Yeah. Where, I mean, th- think about 20 years ago when Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake performed. They didn't even have enough money to fully clothe them. <laughs> yeah. Do you think, like, obviously that was an incredibly viral moment before the concept of a viral moment really existed. How big do you think that would be now? Just the endless Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat coverage of the nip slip. It would be the biggest moment that has probably ever happened in the history of mankind in terms of coverage, if you see what I mean, not in terms of significance. Yeah, maybe. And and you have to keep in mind, too, at that time, I mean, Justin Timberlake was a number one. He was like a top dog in, in the pop stardom, right? So... That alone, you know, you, you have like the one of the number one celebrities in the U.S. doing it. In addition, it would be insane now. 
yeah, I don't even know who the comparison would be. Uh, it's it's difficult to even imagine. I mean, it would be Justin Bieber. Yeah, except he was bigger than Bieber. You know, like he he's bigger than Bieber now. Whoa, whoa. No, but I mean, at the time, it's a very America centric view, Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean Justin Bieber in his. I mean Justin Bieber is not in his prime anymore. Let's be real. Now he's all tatted up and raggedy looking. I mean, he's not. <laughs> you know, like what an insult. There goes our chance of getting Biebs on. <laughs> I think like <laughs> big hockey fan too. No, maybe he probably he he had, he looks like the kind of guy who would like being slightly insulted. So it probably increases our chances. You know, but he. I, I mean, I don't know. I, maybe Harry Styles. Maybe Harry Styles would be the equivalent at this moment in time. I'm trying to think. I'm not obviously of the right age to try and determine who the biggest male pop star is. Adele? No, she would just cry pre-show talking about how how the set wasn't perfect or something. She'd have some kind of mental breakdown because the lights weren't just right. Can we talk about that? We never addressed that issue with her canceling her Vegas or postponing her Vegas uh, show and then having a just breaking down on an Instagram live. I don't even know where, how she did Instagram live or wherever it was telling her, telling her fans how sorry she was and how it just, the show wasn't up to the standard she wanted to be. I found that to be one of the most, she's emotional. It comes out in her music. I thought that was one of the most pathetic things I've ever witnessed. Like just. So you watched it live. I watched her. (laughs) You were all in on her Instagram. Oh yeah. I never miss a beat. But anyway, hit us with some of those Super Bowl facts. You've you've teased us now. Let's get going. Well, we can then move on, I guess, to the stadium. So this is being played in SoFi Stadium, which is the new Los Angeles Rams stadium. The first time they've hosted the Super Bowl in 29 years, since 1993 is the last time. They've hosted uh, seven times before this, so this is now the eighth time. And I guess the interesting fact here is that this is now the second time that a team is playing in their home stadium for the Super Bowl. This is the first time, however, that they will be the visitors. So this year, technically, the Rams are the visiting team, even though they're playing in their home stadium. And the easy answer to what was the other team was last year, Tampa Bay played in Raymond James Stadium. And that was the first time it happened. And now it's happened two years in a row, which I don't, find as a concern i know a lot of people do but one the people who are buying the tickets it has nothing to do with your whether you're a local or not in a sense i mean it kind of does like i guess there's probably some more people buying it in california than there are in let's say new york and new jersey but a lot of people put in lotteries for the super bowl and they're going to go no matter what because it's the super bowl and things like that and it's not easy for normal fans to buy seven thousand dollar tickets to go see their team. So it has an advantage, but I don't think it's as, as big as, of an advantage as people would think it is. Well, from a from a fan perspective in terms of the atmosphere in the stadium, no. I guess what you could say is that obviously it significantly reduced. If you are the type of person who said, hey, if my team ever makes the Super Bowl, I will go. And if you're based in LA and you are a Rams fan, then you've obviously knocked off a considerable part of the cost of attending a Super Bowl in terms of travel and accommodation so you might then be able to sort of bite the bullet when it comes to the 
just ridiculous second secondary market for Super Bowl tickets, you at least might be able to say, well, hey, if I went any other year, I'd pay for a hotel and flights and all that stuff. And even if I got a better deal on the tickets, I'd end up spending the same amount of money. So I guess it does open it up for more local fans to think it makes financial sense. The other argument would be, particularly in a city like LA, with the type of people who are going to be attending, that that with the Rams bandwagon in full swing, that you probably do have, this time around, you probably have a greater percentage of Rams fans than you would have had in any other scenario. That you'll just have a lot of LA-based people who decide, you know what, I'm going to be a Rams fan for today. I'll be a Packers fan week one of next season, but I'll be a Rams fan today. So... I don't think it's really the big advantage of playing at home, obviously, is that you've been able to stay in your own house this whole week. The Rams have then stayed in the same. They're staying the night before. They're staying in the same hotel that they stay in before every home game. Their routine is exactly the same. Stay using the same facilities, except they're not in their same locker room, which is weird. No, but I mean, that will be, I think that's gotta be a little strange. It would be a little bit odd, but it's still in, in your preparation for the game. You, you get to do, you yeah. get to stick to your exact it's routine. It's an advantage. You, you can, and particularly, I guess, during the pandemic, you know, with some COVID restrictions still on, you're still able to see your family, you know, there's kind of elements of stuff there that the Bengals may not be able to do as easily. So there's definitely advantages, but I don't think it's, it's not some, it's not like all of us, you know, that there's going to be 90% Rams fans in attendance and it's, it's going to be a deafening whenever the Bengals have the ball. Yeah. And you might be asking how, just how expensive are those seats? Well, currently the cheapest seats on Ticketmaster are $6,000 per seat, which is crazy. It's actually 7,000 when you add all the fees that Ticketmaster charges. So you're looking at about 7,000 to get the nosebleeds or even maybe like a restricted viewing section. If you want the best seats, you're looking at with fees about $78,000 per ticket. Would you to get the VIP best seats in the house? I don't really love the term bucket list, but definitely attending a Super Bowl is kind of like a bucket list goal i think for a lot of sports fans you know like going to a world cup final or whatever it is you kind of just want to go for the experience i don't know if i could ever justify the expense though no matter even if it even well, even if twenty thousand dollars what if you hit the lottery i don't i would not 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 the, not, not the lottery in the sense of oh, the, like the, money lottery like if you put in for the ticket lottery and won it and you would pay face value um, which is still expensive but not nearly as expensive as the the secondary market. I think I'd sell them though. I, I just think that there was there'd be no moment. <laughs> I'm just being realistic. I think that that, that moment I'd be like, what a move. That moment I'd be like, wow. I, oh, it's the bucket list for me to go to the Super Bowl. I finally got tickets. I got two. Who wants them? Who wants them? <laughs> it's like, do you ever see Talladega Nights yeah. when Ricky Bobby's dad finally goes and he's like. Sir, these tickets have been waiting a long time for you. And he hands it and he just turns around. He's like, I've got two. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I do think, I just genuinely, I think I would have to be so wealthy before I would kind of do that calculation of, uh, I remember, you know, when I went to the Rugby World Cup final and I got lucky in that the tickets were corporate tickets and I didn't have to pay anything for them. But I remember that was... That was in Paris, and England made the final. This is the 2007 Rugby World Cup final. And I had a cousin who was desperate to go and kind of ended up helping them find some 
tickets to buy. And they spent thousands of pounds to get these tickets. Now, their argument was it was a once in a lifetime experience and it kind of was that bucket list item. But I just couldn't. And they could afford them. It's not like this was going to change. They couldn't pay rent as a result of attending the Rugby World Cup final. But I, I just thought to myself, I'd rather sit in a bar and just watch the game. I don't know if I'm going to enjoy being there in the moment enough to warrant that. I'd rather go. I'd rather get an incredible bar experience. You know, spend a couple thousand pounds on privatizing a bar and just having all my friends there versus being in a stadium. Because especially then what ends up happening, your team loses, you're miserable. You got to like file out of a stadium. It takes forever. All the other fans are celebrating. You got to, <laughs> you know, you got to deal with traffic or hop, hop on public transport. It's a nightmare if you lose. Yeah. So the actual face value of the tickets, the cheapest ones that you could have gotten from the lottery were $4,592. And then the cheapest lower level was 7,962. So, so, so what's interesting about that is that so it's only a markup. It's only 2000. On it's only a $2,000 markup. Yeah. Yes. But it gets significantly greater of a markup as you get to the better seats. So a, a good seat is about 8,000 face value, but you're probably going to pay about 20,000 on a secondary market for those. But the cheap seats are close to the same price, not not much higher than than if you were to just win the lottery, the ticket lottery, that is. I mean, the way we, if I'm going to go to a Super Bowl, the way I'm going to end up going, right, is media accreditation. That's... Oh, I thought you were going to say playing. <laughs> wow. <But. If> so, <laughs> Owning the team is how I'm going to go. If someone needs a punter, <laughs> I could definitely, you know, you, you know my confidence when it comes to kicking. I think game on the line, if I had to field goal kicker, I'm I'm good up to 50. No warm-up. So obviously then if we get to the – going from the fans to the people who will be viewing at home, uh, the cost of the Super Bowl commercials is going up this year. They are now up to $6.5 million for a 30-second spot. That's a thousand – a thousand – a million dollars more than it was the year before. So for a one minute commercial, you're looking at about $13 million. Yeah, again, I don't even know if that's worth it. I mean, obviously in terms of eyes on your commercial, and it's one time when you know that people actually pay attention to commercials, which is one of the few times nowadays when people are using streaming services or they're like second screening during during commercial breaks. So who, who's actually paying attention to whatever your commercial is. I guess the one benefit with the Super Bowl is that it, people are, the commercials themselves are so hyped. Obviously, there are those annoying people who only watch the Super Bowl for the commercials. I mean, I, ca- I can't imagine what a sad existence that is. But <laughs> just, I mean, I mean, well, I enjoy the commercials. Sure, but you're not tuning in just for the commercials. No, no. You're not, you're not like sitting in a different room and, and when it hits a commercial break, the other people are like, hey, you come, come in, in, come in. It's a commercial break. They just called a timeout. Come on, come on. <laughs> so what I think is really strange is now they pre-release some of the commercials. So I don't know if you've already seen, I already saw the Amazon Alexa one with uh, Scarlett Johansson and her husband. Um, oh, I can never remember his name. The From Saturday Night Live uh, I forget his name. Colin, but they Colin have Jost. A, Colin Jost. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Yep. 
they already that commercial's already released. I already watched it. So and it's it's decent. It's okay. It's kind of funny, but I don't understand why they that defeats the purpose to me. Is why would you pre-release the commercial that you're paying thirteen million dollars to put on television for? Um, which is kind of strange. But obviously, the other aspect of this is the people watching. So one, how much food are they going to eat? And now, Eddie, we've done the guacamole one. Do you remember? How much guacamole people will eat? I do not. <laughs> I have to admit, I do not. It's about o- over 500 million pounds of guacamole and 1.2 billion pounds of chicken wings. So Vasilis has some catching up to do if he wants to contribute significantly to 1.2 billion pounds of chicken wings. The other fun fact I saw was they've already estimated how many uh, Americans will miss work on Monday. Do you want to take a guess at the number? Um, I'll say 5 million. 17.5 million Americans are estimated to miss work. 11 will use pre-approved time, while 4 million will call out sick, even though they're not. And then they estimate 1.5 million just will ghost everyone and not show up, which is clearly the move. Do you really need to tell someone why you're not there the Monday after the Super Bowl? If I'm not there, you know why I'm not there. Don't ask. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Obviously, it depends on the job. If you know you're going to miss it, how you cannot have this is like just a pre-approved day off. Is the, it's crazy. Uh, obviously not all jobs would allow for that luxury. So I do understand, but the ghosting move, I don't know. That feels like you get yourself fired. I don't know if that's the way. I don't know if that's the play. I don't know if it's not only did you not show up, you're not even giving us as an excuse. At least if you call in sick, people can know like wink, wink, nod, nod. Yeah, you're sick. We don't believe you, but you still putting them in the position where they have to really call you out for it. And now here's a, Classic trivia question. Maybe you already know the answer to this one. But for our listeners, this is one you can bring up during the commercials if it's a really shitty commercial. So the record for the most watched event, show, anything in America is the Super Bowl. With It was the Seahawks and Patriots Super Bowl where 114.4 million viewers watched that Super Bowl. What is the most watched non-Super Bowl? I'll say event, but it doesn't necessarily have to be an event. This is in the U.S. specifically. In the U.S. Um, it's good. I mean, I know that sports dominate things. I, 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 so I'm tempted. There's three things that spring to mind. One would be something sports related. So that'd be that be the Olympics or still maybe even a football world cup would be in the sports category as a possibility. Then I don't know how high still the moon landing ranks as a possible event that could still get in just because even though the population would have been smaller and not quite as many TVs, just most people would have found a way to watch it. And then the third and probably the saddest possibility and I don't mean sad in terms of the nature of the event, 
but just in what it says about our society is maybe Princess Diana's funeral is the other possibility. And I'm going to lean towards, I don't believe in our society choose, choosing what to watch in an intelligent way. So I'm going to go Princess Diana's funeral as the next thing. So technically you're right. Apollo 11 um, is still kind of regarded as the most watched. It's above the Super Bowl, but that the estimated viewing is about 125. They don't really have a good number because it was long enough ago that's tough to see. So that one kind of gets thrown out, and that's why the Super Bowl gets called the most watched event because it's tough to, to do the Apollo 11. But that most likely is the most. The first non-Super Bowl, though, is not Princess Diane. It is Richard Nixon's resignation speech. Okay, that's better. And then the first... The next non-Super Bowl, so the Super Bowl filled up like the top 10, basically. The next non-Super Bowl is the last episode of MASH, where 106 million viewers tuned in to see the final episode. Still better than my guesses. Yeah. Interestingly, the police pursuit of O.J. Simpson had 95 million viewers. That was a big one. I was one of them. Were you in the U.S. at the time? Did you actually contribute to that number? Yeah, I was in the U.S. at the time, yeah. Yeah. And what other, any other facts? I got a few non-football-specific facts to throw in there. I know you got the food discussion prepped for us, but any other super, super, super bowl facts to share? No, the most, I guess, from then on, it's kind of just actual game facts um, and things, things of that nature. Um, the first Super Bowl ticket, getting back to that, was $6 for the Chiefs and the Green Bay Packers. So we've gone a long way from a $6 ticket to a $5,000 ticket. <laughs> what uh, non-football related ones do you have? Well, I actually don't. Listeners? Well, they're kind of football adjacent, I would say. So they're not... I, the one that amused me the most, I guess, of the not football specific was obviously this is the youngest... Uh, combined ages of the head coaches that we've ever had in the Super Bowl. So you have uh, McVay, who is 36, and Zach Taylor is 38. And the only reason I found that amusing is just because obviously it comes on the heels of last year, where it was the highest combined ages of two head coaches in the Super Bowl, where a Andy Reid and Bruce Arians combined age was 130. So it's... Oh, I was going to guess like 170. Yeah, so 74, <laughs> 74 is the combined number this year, and 130 was the combined number last wow, year. Wow, almost half. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. That is interesting. Yeah, and um, another little one would be that uh, Taylor was actually in the Ram system, right? I don't know if everyone knows that. Wasn't Zach Taylor a coach? Oh, as a as a co as a, a coach for um, for McVeigh in yeah. 2019, right? Yeah, the last year before he became a head coach, he was working under McVeigh. Yeah, he so was this the, is another year where you have kind of that coaching tree coming together. He and was obviously the, the McVeigh coaching tree with Shanahan. Yeah, he was the assistant wide receivers coach in 2017 and the quarterbacks coach in 2018. I find that interesting because I do remember there was that moment, right, where everyone, when McVeigh was the kind of, you know, pride, the sort of wonder, wonder kid of uh, NFL coaching, and 
everyone from his coaching staff was being hired, of which Wonderkind, yeah, <laughs> of which Zach Taylor was one. And I remember that people were making fun of it pretty relentlessly. You know, there were all those jokes on ESPN and elsewhere where it was, oh, if you have a cup of coffee with Sean McVay, someone will hire you as a head coach. I guess in the end, kind of looks like it's working out. It's always I, I find the coaching tree analysis it's always so hard to do, um, and also there's such a huge overlap anyway in terms of you know when does someone fall necessarily into one coaching tree versus the other. So like saying Sean McVay for example is he will he eventually be part of Kyle Shanahan's coaching tree because obviously Kyle Shanahan originally hired him when he was in Washington, but then does McVay then fall under Shanahan's dad's coaching tree. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's one of these weird things where who are you giving the credit to for the person and the role that they have? When is it just the head coach signing off on all of those hires? When is it someone a little bit further down the chain doing it? Well, I mean the Mike Shanahan coaching tree is kind of where they're all coming from now. Right. It was before that it was the, um, the one that Andy Reid was in, that was uh, is that the Parcells, the Parcells, yeah, tree, yeah. and now it kind of is the the Shanahan where you have, like you said, Kyle Shanahan, Matt Lafleur, Sean McVay. Um, but that's what I mean. That's what's interesting about it because, so, Sean McVay was part of. He was doing a podcast for the Ringer called Flying Coach for a while, where he was speaking with other coaches. It's actually a pretty good podcast. Don't want to plug necessarily other sports podcasts, but it was actually a pretty interesting one in terms of you have NFL coaches kind of really talking shop with each other. But I mean, they explained there, they had Kyle Shanahan on. So this was over the course of the summer. This was back in July, I think, that they spoke with each other. And and then obviously Kyle Shanahan was working for his dad, Mike, in Washington, but he was told just to hire people. So it's not as if you know, the Sean McVay hire was kind of ultimately his decision. Sean McVay was working kind of directly with him. Uh, Sean, and, you know, and McVay would attribute Kyle Shanahan as being the one who kind of taught him a lot of what he knows in terms of the attention to detail and the creativity and his thinking. So it's kind of weird, you know, like who is getting credit for the coach's development. I, I just find yeah. that a little bit what? odd at times. Yep, and then I mean that could bring us to this. We can just address this quickly, but then where where do you put these two newest hires of the Dolphins and the Vikings? Where the Dolphins hired the 49ers offensive coordinator Mike McDaniel. So is he technically a product of the Shanahan coaching tree because he was under Shanahan's son Kyle, or is he now Kyle Shanahan's coaching tree? Um, and then you have the. Vikings hired the Rams offensive coordinator, Kevin O'Connell. So is he in the McVay coaching tree or is he also in the Shanahan because Shan McVay came from Shanahan? So, um, yeah, I, I see exactly what you're saying. It's kind of, I, I guess they're like, they're part of the tree, like the tree branches, right? So you have to have one person who started it and it branches out. So they're like coaching relatives. Um, but those are two of the more recent hires, the Dolphins and the Vikings both hiring younger offensive coordinators from both the Niners and the Rams. So are we doing food first or football first? Which way you want to go about it? 
Let's do the food and then let's, okay, let's thought, savor the food I to get to were, the football. I thought you were definitely going to say, people have probably come for the football. Let's do the football. But we'll start with the food then. <laughs> no, people are coming for the Super Bowl. This is all things Super Bowl 56, right? So, Well, we're taking the we ball. Wanna, at, we wanna, we're, we're taking the ball aspect of the Super Bowl more literally than figuratively here. So it's, the focus is on the yeah. food. How much Skyline chili do you think you could fit into a supersized bowl? <laughs> a lot. So that is obviously Eddie is mentioning Skyline chili, and that is probably the most famous food Cincinnati has going for it. What is Skyline chili, you might ask? So basically, it's kind of like a chili con carne, but you remove the beans and you also add some cinnamon and chocolate flavor. So it's kind of like a sweet, spicy chili, no beans, beef only. And what makes it interesting is how it's served. So Eddie's alluding to the fact that Skyline chili is most commonly put on spaghetti, but it can also be put on hot dogs. And these are called cheese conies, where it is a hot dog with a bun with chili, cheese, mustard, and onion optional. The strange thing about this is the cheese they always go for is this very processed shredded cheddar. And it does not look appealing because it's not melted or anything. It's just kind of like, instead of lettuce, you just drizzle shredded cheese on top. The then more famous one is the skyline chili and you can have this several ways you can have it a three-way which is chili cheese and spaghetti a four-way which is chili cheese spaghetti and onions or beans and a five-way which is chili cheese spaghetti onions and beans and when you're picturing this you picture a bowl of plain dry spaghetti with just a like a plop of chili on top and then just mounds of unmelted shredded shredded cheese, onions, and then the beans. It is it does not look appetizing in any way. I'm sure it's good. I mean it is not doesn't some, look great. <laughs> some foods just aren't photogenic. Chili is one of them. Like the best chili in the world is not it's difficult to present it in, in an appealing way visually. So I'm sympathetic in that regards. There's lots of, I mean, there's places I go where, you know, you can have like the Instagrammable aspect of the restaurant and the food. Some of that works. Sometimes you order a meal, you know, like you can't Instagram, you can't take a good photo of chili. You can't take a good photo of poutine, for example. Good luck with that. It's just going to look disgusting kind of no matter how you, (laughs) no matter how good the lighting is. And that can be the best poutine in the world. It could be absolutely delicious, but you cannot take a good picture of that. Even a curry, a curry can kind of look a little bit nicer because if they do have the sort of the um, now nah, the color of curry just it's not great just kills it I think but with the layout it's not a can, good color you can kind of do it nicely you know when you have the little Indian metallic bowls and stuff you can kind of you can have it in a way where it's a little bit more photogenic but fundamentally any food that looks a little bit like slop you're onto a loser if you're trying to take a nice photo of it yeah. So if after hearing that, you say you're out on Cincinnati, I'll say, whoa, whoa, hold it up. Cincinnati's got more than Skyline Chili. 
It also has what's called Geta. And this is a German dish that people sometimes call fried mush. So you know it's going to be good when its nickname is fried mush. It's a breakfast dish that is a combination of pork sausage and oats that's kind of made into like a thicker sausage patty. And then like you slice it into patties and then deep fry it. I would compare it slightly to Scrapple, which anyone from Pennsylvania would know what Scrapple is, where you're just taking portions of the pork that weren't used that you would use for sausage, grinding it up and mixing it with oats and then deep and then not deep frying it, but frying it on a griddle. I think I think it'd be okay. It's probably fine. It kind of reminds me of maybe what's. No, it kind of reminds me of maybe what's inside um, haggis. You know how you have like, it's like the meat and the, it's not oat though. It's kind of like a barley, right? That's in haggis. Yeah. So it's kind of something similar to that where it's like a meat and a grain. And except this time it's fried. <laughs> I, I will just say this. I don't think anyone has ever made, aside from very patriotic Scottish people, tried to incur, say, hey, this food doesn't sound that bad. It kind of reminds me of haggis. <laughs> I never know. Not, think. but just the in, just the actual yeah. inside part of haggis, not with the uh, not with the stomach. <laughs> yeah, it's still, just the filling. Yeah, just the filling. They also have a famous ice cream called Grater's ice cream, and the uh, fact about Grater's ice cream is that ice cream is so thick the company had to hire people, not machines, to scoop the ice cream into each pack. Again, I don't know if that's, that's something that would interest you. No, I'm I'm <laughs> a big super thick ice cream. I'm a big soft ice cream person. Like if I had my choice, a soft serve ice cream to me is just so much better. If I have ice cream at home, I do like it when it melts a bit. Like I'm, I was gonna I'm, say, isn't that like the biggest knock on on non soft serve ice cream is if if the majority of people will take out the ice cream and let it sit for a bit or put it in the microwave for a little bit to make it softer. Doesn't that tell you that like non-soft serve ice cream isn't that good? <laughs> you know, like you're trying to make it more soft serve. <laughs> yeah. And and look, I'm sure there's some diehards out there who would tell us we're wrong. And then kind of, I'm sure in particular, in terms of the quality of the ice cream, obviously, I'm sure, you know, soft serve is is the kind of McDonald's of ice cream, right? Like it's not where you're going for your higher end ingredients and quality of, of product. But yeah, for me, if, if I have the option of just having a soft serve poured out of a, you know, like a ice cream van somewhere and I'm walking along eating that on a summer's day, to me, that's the perfect ice cream experience. I don't want to be like having to take out a knife and fork to kind of slice through my scoop of ice cream as I eat it. So the, I would say the best fact I could find about what Cincinnati would be known for is that it holds the lo- the United States largest Oktoberfest festival is held every year in Cincinnati. I think that's a decent fact for them. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> that's as good as I could find, Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to the people of Ohio and Cincinnati in particular, but I think Joe Burrow said it best when he said there's really nothing to do here nightlife wise. So maybe that's why we're good. <laughs> maybe. I mean, I look, I'm sure Cincinnati, I mean, I'm, I've never been to, I've flown through Cincinnati. I've never 
and I think I've stayed in a hotel and like around the airport in Cincinnati. I've not explored the city itself at any point, but I'm sure it's decent. I mean, we've we've we, you and I spent time together in Cleveland. That was fun. So I'm not going to knock Ohio. Love a, Cleveland. Yeah, I'm, I'm imagining that Cincinnati is. I'm sure in the. Ohio rivalry between Southern Ohio and Northern Ohio. I'm sure that people, if I say that Cincinnati probably is not too dissimilar to Cleveland, anyone from Northern Ohio is going to get really upset about that. But I imagine that the experience would be somewhat the same. Yeah. And maybe we go to Oktoberfest, Cincinnati, as they call it. Maybe. Where half a million people attend every year. <laughs> I think if I'm going to travel to Oktoberfest, I'm probably not going to make my way to Ohio. <laughs> I think I'd probably <laughs> head to Germany, but who knows? Maybe fate will intervene and I'll find myself in uh, in Cincinnati one of these days. Now for Los Angeles. I must say I was surprised that I could find a lot of foods that had originated in Los Angeles. So obviously Los Angeles is a well-known food city in the United States, but I think of that as more of terms of the quality of the food. Not that they're known or foods originated from Los Angeles. Um, so obviously, you know, like tacos and street tacos have become super famous in Los Angeles and they've kind of evolved the traditional Mexican taco and, and a lot of um, like Japanese food like sushi um, has kind of evolved in Los Angeles. But there have been things that have come directly from the city of Los Angeles. The first one I think you're a fan of but then part of me thinks you're not a fan of because you're too pretentious and the act of dipping would aggravate you. So the French dip sandwich was originated in downtown Los Angeles in 1908. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I don't know if I believe this. I, I, what do you mean? Well, it's, 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 it's a very definitive story of it was uh, Philippe. Uh, Philippe's restaurant where a customer came in and he wanted a sandwich late at night and the meat was dry. So he dipped it all into the uh, like bowl, not the bowl, but like the pot that had all the sauces, pulled it out, gave it to him. And then the guy was like, this is amazing. And then so he started doing it regularly where they would have kind of like soaked sandwiches. And then he ended up giving them a side to dip it in themselves. So I, I guess I believe the the idea of it being soaked or served wet, I guess is the term that they get gets used. That I believe. But the idea that they invented the concept of taking like a, a roast beef sandwich and just dipping it in Eddie, they sauce did. slash gravy, that, that no one had thought of that until the early 20th century. I don't buy that for a second. That's one of those, you really think that no one ever before went, hey, I got some leftover roast beef and some gravy here. I'll make a roast beef sandwich. And you know what? I'll dip that in the gravy. I think, oh, no, no, no. What a revolutionary concept. In the au jus, Eddie, not in the gravy. Sure, sure. But I don't believe that for a second. The, the idea of ruining the sandwich by pouring gravy all over it so it then just becomes a total mess. I'll give Philippe credit I mean, for that. I mean, the obvious point of contention here is it's called the French dip. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm assuming maybe Philippe, the French have something to do with it. I'm assuming <laughs> Philippe was French, but I mean, I've had I've had what would not get called a French dip, Sam. I mean, it would just not get called a French dip in Europe. I've definitely had them in Europe, so I guess 
LA's food culture is so great that the sandwich just had to spread across the world. But the idea of like a, a steak or a beef sandwich that you're just roast beef sandwich that you're dipping in 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 jus or gravy. I've had that in a number of countries not referred to as a French dip, but I'll give them credit. If you want to, I know that there's a time when they just pour the, the, the juice all over the sandwich itself and it's just a disgusting, soppy mess. They can have credit for that. Okay. The next one. I'll just say so far, featured... if we're scoring, okay, what... if we're actually scoring so far, it's one zero Cincinnati. Wow. Wow. Okay. This one has been featured on Curb Your Enthusiasm, Eddie. Do you know what, what I'm referring to? Frozen yogurt? The origin of the Cobb salad. Okay. So the Cobb salad was definitively invented in Brown Derby restaurant in Hollywood. However, as Curb would allude to, who, dis- who invented it at the restaurant is still a point of contention. One story is that the owner, Robert Cobb, invented it when he had celebrities coming in and they wanted a, like everything. So he put everything he could into the salad and made it. And another one is that the executive chef made it and made it in honor of the owner, Robert Cobb. So that's still debated, but it was invented in Brown Derby restaurant in Hollywood. Cobb salad. I like a Cobb salad. Nice salad. I, I always think the Cobb salad's interesting and really having the defining feature of the Cobb salad is its layout and organization, right? I mean, it's really committed to the idea that every ingredient is entirely separated until the moment you decide to eat it. Interesting move from a salad's perspective, but I do like a Cobb salad. Okay, this one I think you might like. The original hot fudge sundae was invented in Los Angeles at C.C. Brown's Ice Cream Parlor. First person to ever pour chocolate on the ice cream, like hot <laughs> chocolate. Um, okay, yeah, I'm a fan of a, a sundae. I mean, I'm more a fan of the idea of like hot fudge on ice cream. The, the entire sundae experience to me can be a little bit too much. But Well, I, I think this was just the hot fudge edition. Okay. Yeah, that's so. Yeah, yeah, that's an uh, it's an upgrade. I rarely have it, but yeah. So a little debated, but maybe makes sense given the name. The California roll seems to be invented in Los Angeles. I'm not giving them credit for sushi, <laughs> but a specific type of sushi. No, because I mean that's just too specific. No. I'm not giving them any credit for sushi or Mexican food. Okay, so so then this one we might have some debate on as well. The cheeseburger was invented in Los Angeles. Not the hamburger, but the fact of putting cheese on a burger don't believe it. was invented in Los Angeles. Just don't believe it. I just don't. No, Again. It's, it, it is an absolute fact that he was the first one because the hamburger itself, putting the meat on a sandwich like that, it was relatively recent at the time. And he overburnt the burger, so he put cheese on to hide it. And then that was the invention of the cheeseburger. Lionel Sternberger, ironically, at the right spot in Pasadena. I guess the issue when it comes to food, as basic as that, in an innovation as simple as that, 
invent seems a strong word. Maybe at best popularize, I think, is more likely. Because again, am, are we really saying that no one had ever thought about sticking a little bit of cheese on a hamburger before? Or even the credit of inventing the hamburger itself, the idea of a kind of minced meat, like a, a meat patty sandwich. I'm also not... So I'll give popularize, but I'm not going to give LA... I'm not going to say that LA gets to claim the cheeseburger as like a LA specific. Well, my, yeah. My question on that was, is that a big advancement or, or is the invention of the hamburger the big advancement? Because I kind of think, are there a lot of people who are eating a hamburger without cheese besides if you have an allergy to it? Oh, so friend of the podcast furlong who uh, I think most of his stories actually rarely make the podcast. However, on New Year's Eve, we were together, and a girl who was in our group on New Year's Eve was hungry. This is probably around 11 o'clock at night, so she just went on Uber Eats or something and ordered a bunch of McDonald's, not just for herself. She didn't consult anyone, but she ordered like a bunch of the little burgers and some nuggets and kind of ordered for the group. No one had asked her. No one else knew that she was doing this, but she just walked out of the bar and then came back in with a big McDonald's bag and had in it uh, like 10 burgers and 40 nuggets for a group of six or seven people and started distributing them. Furlong took his. He then, she she gives him this free burger and he was like, is this not a cheeseburger? And she's like, no, nah, it's just oh a, my, it's just a normal burger. And he was like, this is wild. Who doesn't order? Who doesn't order a cheeseburger? Who does not order a cheeseburger? So, be wary of that person, Eddie, because the person who orders the hamburger and not the cheeseburger—that is a questionable character. <laughs> I am with. I am with friend of the friend of the podcast for a long. I just loved it because he was being given a free item of food, but he was openly just in front of her, like this is fucking wild. Who doesn't order a cheeseburger? It's a very actually speaking of Larry David, that would be a very Larry David moment if he were giving something free that wasn't that good and he would complain about it. But I, I listen. I'm on his side here. Unless you have some sort of allergy or issue with cheese. I don't know why you would order a hamburger without the cheese. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's crazy. I guess the only argument you could make is that if you are getting a burger, now, most of the time, the kind of quality of beef you're getting in a burger or other meat, depending on the, it's not super high. However, if you are going to go to the kind of place where maybe it is super high quality meat within your burger, then I guess you could make the argument that the cheese is just. It's the, it can often be the dominating flavor within your burger, which is great if it's crappy. Maybe. Don't defend this sociopath, Eddie. Well, I mean, she, this is McDonald's. <laughs> I mean, this isn't high-quality meat. I wasn't complaining. I, I ate one of the little mini burgers. It was, you know, it hit It was sp- okay. It would have been better with cheese. Probably, yeah. I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm always ordering a cheeseburger if I order a burger. But then I, I'm usually ordering a chicken sandwich anyway. So, and I'm now I do find it interesting the people who put cheese on the chicken sandwich. That's a whole nother debate. I I would put them in the psycho category usually. Yeah, I, the only time I would put cheese on a chicken sandwich is if it were grilled chicken, 
just because grilled chicken's so bland that the cheese would help it out. But if it's yeah. a fried chicken sandwich, I don't put cheese on it. Okay. Yeah, I, I would You agree. want the friedness of the chicken to, to stand out yeah, there. Yeah, I would agree with you there. Okay. All right. So those are the major food ones. I have three quick drink ones that they've invented. One, the Shirley Temple. Are you a fan? As a kid, I loved a Shirley Temple. Haven't had one in a long time, but I think as a if I was out as a when as a kid, the Shirley Temple. I remember this is gonna classic, gonna make you laugh, but definitely at my as a kid at a country club we used to go to, Shirley Temple was like the drink <laughs> I used to love to order. I then kind of I decided to make a slight in a like slightly altered. Went for my own version of the Shirley Temple. Got the drink named after me in the country club. Was it DeRoy Rogers? <laughs> it was the Arnold Palmer. <laughs> 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 no, I did a slight variation. I did cranberry juice, Sprite, and lemonade as my as in a, and the balance of it with a couple other tweaks. But got that with my, which I still to this day will occasionally drink. Rarely have the ingredients, okay. but. Well, interestingly enough, Shirley Temple did not like the drink. She complained it was too sweet for her taste. She wanted more gin. <laughs> to be honest, to be honest with you, I don't think I could drink a Shirley Temple now. I think I would find it to be disgustingly sweet. But as a kid, loved it. I sometimes when I go to Sonic, I get the cherry limeades. They're pretty good. It's very similar to that, almost the same. Very nice. So next one, the Orange Julius. Have you ever had an Orange Julius? No. Oh. Invented in Los Angeles in 1926. So it's a drink. Uh, It's orange juice with milk, sugar, vanilla extract, egg, and ice was the original one. I think they've now since taken out the egg. But (laughs) it's basically kind of like... uh, a smoothie orange juice. Sounds gross. Pretty good. Yeah, they're pretty good. Friend of the Furlong, Chris. Friend of the friend of the podcast, Furlong, loves an orange Julius. I don't speaking. <laughs> speaking of, I don't know if that means Furlong. I don't know if that changes my mind on my initial instinct on whether or not it was good. And then the last one was the oyster cocktail, invented in 1900 in Los Angeles. What do you mean the oyster cocktail? Like having your like an oyster in a cocktail, like a drink. Okay, I can, very gross to me. Yeah, I could. I could, that's a pass for me. Yeah, I'm not even I a big fan. I don't know why people drink those. I'm not even a big fan when it's like the brunch and people are getting bloody marys, but then people just have to stick, you know, like more and more things in your bloody mary to try and make it. Yeah, like shrimp and bacon. I, I've got no interest in that. And I love a Bloody Mary. I love tomato juice in general. Um, in actual fact, I'm, I'm, I don't do a dry January or a sober October, but I think post-Super Bowl, I'm going to not have any alcohol for a month. An effed up February. <laughs> well, yeah, but partial <laughs> February, partial beginning of, of March. And as part of that, tomato juice is going to be my go-to order in a bar. So... I'm on board with it as a concept. Ugh. Really? Yeah. I'm a big fan. I drink it at home. That's so gross. I drink it at home regularly. I've even been drinking it on, on occasion when we've been recording the podcast. Oh, that is disgusting. Why not just drink a soda at the bar? 
Coke Zero? Um, well, I don't want to drink an actual soda. So then the, the, the idea would then be, do I just drink like soda water? But I, don't know, I feel like that's such a boring order. So the tomato juice was at least like, I'll probably give up on it. Let's be real. But that's the goal at the moment. Well, one hour into our podcast, Eddie, let's get on to the actual Super Bowl 56 Cincinnati Bengals Los Angeles Rams matchup. Right. Should we? I hate to break it to you, but Madden has already played and the Bengals have won. Hopefully, so no need to watch. John Madden himself from the grave or just a Madden simulation <laughs> of the video game? The Madden official Madden simulation revealed that the Bengals will win. 24-21. Wow. With a it was a tight game and Joe Burrow drove them down the field for the game-winning field goal. Okay. Interesting. Well, should we set the scene a little bit with a couple of uh, interesting facts related more specifically to the game? Yeah, go ahead. Let me hear it. Well, I mean, we touched on at the end of the episode, right? Of the last episode, the fact that these are two number 1 quarterbacks. It's only the Second time in Super Bowl history that two quarterbacks selected number one overall will face each other in a Super Bowl. The only other time that that happened was Super Bowl 50 when Cam Newton and Peyton Manning played each other. I would have guessed that. (laughs) So that's one interesting fact. Stafford is also the seventh starting quarterback in NFL history to reach the Super Bowl with his first in the first season with a new team. Obviously, Tom Br- Tom Brady did it uh, last year, um, and uh, you know a number of other. The interesting thing, looking through the list, is that most of the time they win the Super Bowl. So I guess that's one positive for Stafford and the Rams. I'm going to keep going with my somewhat interesting. Yeah, what else you got? Well, if he plays Andrew, uh, if he plays Andrew Whitworth, would become the first forty-year-old offensive lineman to play in a Super Bowl, and the eighth player forty or older to play in any position in a Super Bowl. But he would be the first, not the oldest, not the <laughs> oldest, but he would be the first player in Super Bowl history to be older than both head coaches in the game. That's a pretty crazy stat. I like that one. There's someone playing. How, how do you think that coaching dynamic is? Um, I guess. How I do you think it's like being coached by someone that is what three years, four years younger than you? Four years younger, and also too, right? Offensive linemen often are considered to be like some of the most uh, have the highest football IQ of of some players, right? Like it's you have a very good understanding of both the offensive and defensive side of the game, so. It's probably a little bit weird, but I don't know. I think as a quarterback, it would be a real challenge. I can't imagine, for example, Tom Brady having a 36-year-old coach. Like that, I just cannot, the dynamic there, I cannot imagine it. At least when you're a lineman. Well, it's like the Aaron Rodgers, Matt LaFleur dynamic, right? Yeah. Yeah, I guess. And that doesn't seem to be working. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I can't can't imagine Rodgers having a good dynamic with any head coach though. So age is not really the factor there. And then uh, you, you said that the Madden simulation has the 
Bengals winning with a on a field goal to take the lead. Uh, kicker Evan McPherson has the most field goals made by a rookie in NFL postseason history already, so he has 12 so far. He's also the first player in NFL history to make four-plus field goals in three straight playoff games. With If he can hit three field, three field goals or more in the Super Bowl, McPherson will set a new NFL record for field goals made in a single season, breaking Adam Vinatieri's 14 field goals that he made in 2006. Yeah, I mean, he's having a phenomenal year as a rookie. And, you know, people always like to debate when you take a kicker in the draft and is it worth it? And he is this year proof that, I mean, without him, they're not in the Super Bowl for sure. So that, that was a great pick by them. And he's been, he's been cl- so clutch in the playoffs for a rookie. It's, it's been impressive. Although I will say, actually, in some ways, the strength, I mean, it's it's a real weapon, obviously, and we touch on it sometimes when we talk about the Ravens with Justin Tucker, the idea that once you get just inside midfield, it feels like there's three points on the board already, and I think that's a real strain and pressure on a defense. At the same time with the Bengals, what they haven't done a good job in this postseason of doing is actually scoring touchdowns. They've managed to get away with it so far, but in some respects... I think almost having a good field goal kicker whilst being a weapon can sometimes be a little bit of a hindrance in terms of maybe having slightly more aggressive play calling at times. And you kind of settle for three more easily because you do get to, okay, we've got a 45 yard field goal. It's fourth and two. Let's just take the three points. Cause we know we're going to get them versus in a different scenario where oh, we're right in between field goal territory and punt territory but it's fourth and two. I think we should go for it. So there is that element here where part of me feels like if they need to, if they're going to win this Super Bowl, they almost have to forget that they've got a really good field goal kicker and only bring him out if they really, really have to. Yeah, it's it's an interesting point. While we're discussing kickers, I'm going to give you my best prop bet of the Super Bowl. It is that the opening kickoff will be returned. And right now that is an underdog at plus 115. So a little over one to one. I hate that as a bet. I really hate that. The only fun thing about that is it gives you a reason to look into the opening kickoff. But It has hit 18 of the last 20 Super Bowls. And there's two main reasons. So one is that there's an increased likelihood that the player who is receiving the kick wants to make an instant impact and will return it. But the bigger issue is that it's a brand new ball that the teams have had no manipulation of. So it's a lot stiffer and harder than what they're normally used to kicking on. So it, it will decrease the distance they kick anywhere from five to 10 yards. So in a player like McPherson, who 60% of the time kicks it through the end zone, it's going to be a lot more difficult for him to even kick it through the end zone. So there's a better chance that they'll get a return and it's hit 18 out of the last 20. Pretty crazy. All right. Hey, that's, that's some good facts there. Now I've got another stat. This to me is this seems like it's right up Frank, right up your alley. Starting quarterbacks with the first name, Joe are seven and two all time in the Super Bowl. They are tied with Tom, which have all been won by Tom Brady as the most <laughs> successful first name in Super Bowl history. That is a great, great stat. I wish 
we still had that other person who used to be on our podcast to tell us what is the more unique name, <laughs> Joe or, or Tom. Tom. <laughs> oh, so exotic. Uh, but yeah. Well, there is Joe Exotic, so. Yeah. No, that is true. But uh, And with a win, Sean McVay would become the youngest head coach in NFL history to win a Super Bowl, which is kind of crazy when you consider that he's already lost a Super Bowl. Uh, he would, Three years ago. Yeah. <laughs> 36. That's what's crazy. Yeah, even crazier. 36 years and 20 days old uh, if he wins on Sunday. Mike Tomlin is currently the youngest head coach to have won a Super Bowl when the Steelers won. He was 36 years and 323 days old. So McVeigh would beat him by 303 days. Uh, Zach Taylor, if he wins, would be the second youngest coach to have won a Super Bowl. So we know who Tomlin's rooting for. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. That is pretty interesting. Did, with Speaking of the coaches, with all of the buildup for the Super Bowl, have you seen the increased amount of uh, how amazing McVeigh's photographic memory is that we've d- discussed before? Oh, There's been a lot more videos that have popped up where people just randomly quiz him on a play in a random game at a random time. And he can tell you the play it's, I know you don't think it's impressive, but I think it's pretty impressive when you consider the amount of plays within a game and the amount of games that he's been a part of. It's not even just his head coaching. He can tell you like when it was the Washington Redskins, what the play was that was run and what happened. Yeah. I mean, again, Sure. And I think, look, having a good memory and kind of a kind of mind where you can retain that level of detail is probably a trait that lends yourself to being a head coach. In the same way, I know like Peyton Manning has that same ability, right? And there's this, the famous story of whoever the Tennessee head coach was calling him up because he wanted to use a play that they had used when Peyton Manning was in, in college. I think we spoke about this at the time when we were discussing Sean McVay's and Peyton Manning was able to tell it was a play they used once and Peyton Manning was able to tell him the play and the one instance that they had used it this was sort of seven years after the play had been run so I don't know because again like when we discussed this before I can think back on significant sporting memories and my ability to retain like essential details of those would be pretty high and through my own athletic career I think I could kind of run back pretty much play by play through things that happened and give you a lot of those details. And certainly if my job had, if that had been a continued to be a, a real advantage for my job, I think I'd be able to do that even better. It's not like Sean McVay was a high school football coach quit. Now he's an accountant and you're going up to his desk and being like, Hey, Sean, what play did you run in 2007 in the, in the like high school state championship game on, you know, with two minutes and 13 seconds left and he like breaks it all down for you. Like there is a reason for him to be retaining that level of detail, but it's definitely, and again, I'll actually say when I, when I watched the podcast that he had with, uh, uh, Kyle Shanahan, what was impressive, Shanahan was talking about the plays he called in the, in the Super Bowl with the Falcons and some of the regret over those that play calling, McVeigh was able to like give details about those plays as well. So you obviously, I mean, he, I'm not denying it's impressive. I just don't. I'm not sure if it's as impressive as some people think it is. 
I guess to round that off, the flip I would add, the reverse I would ask you is: Have you ever seen an NFL head coach get asked about a play and say, "I don't remember"? <laughs> I don't remember the details. It feels to Maybe me. Maybe we should start having coaches on and asking them. No, it, I, you know what? No, no. I, I, I think that's, I think that's an unfair statement because the fact that you have NFL professionals who are blown away by it must mean it's a pretty rare thing to be able to do. Maybe. I don't know. Like I, 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 you're right. If I asked him and he said it, I would think it's crazy, but how the hell do I know? But when other coaches or people who have been coaches or quarterbacks even ask him and he can say it and they're blown away. So the, the obvious one is Sims, uh, the younger Sims. I saw one recently with him and he was just like mind blown about how much he knew for a random play in a random game. I guess. I don't know. At the same time, part of the role in the media at times feels like it is to hype up the experience that you're getting. So I am i don't want to be into, like just negative for the sake of it. And it is definitely impressive. Again, I would just say I have never seen – I feel like whenever I see a quarterback interviewed about pass plays, they're, eight, they're always able to give you just an incredible level of detail when someone brings it up. And the same with head coaches. So maybe he's operating on a slightly higher level than the rest of them. But I definitely feel like whenever I've seen Manning, Brady, Breeze, any of them get asked about a play from 10 years ago, they're able to tell you sort of every element of it. And I mean, I think, and also here, for the most part, people ask him about kind of significant plays. I know that they can be significant plays and not the most significant of games, but it'll be like, what did you do on this third down? It's not hey, uh, four minutes into the first quarter, you had a second and seven that, you know, and that gets was an incompletion. Like, tell us about that play. It's like, hey, tell us about this crucial third down conversion you had. Tell us about this time you scored a touchdown. Like, that tends to be the kind of questions he gets asked. And maybe he can remember them all. I'm not downing it, but I, I just think it's maybe not quite as amazing as some people think. Well, do you have any more Interesting facts, Super Bowl facts. Um, well, with a win, the Rams would become the second seed from the NFC to win a Super Bowl. The last and only time that has happened is in 2011 with the New York Giants. Fourth seed. Fourth seed from the NFC. <laughs> it's quite a specific fact. And what did I say first? You said second. Oh, okay. Yeah, the second fourth seed. And with a win, the Rams would also become the second L.A. franchise to win a Super Bowl because the L.A. Well, the Raiders, then of L.A., beat Washington in 1984. And, yeah. And I think that's not right. so many interesting facts about the Bengals. <laughs> just, <Of> poor Cincinnati. <laughs> no, I mean, and I don't mean that as, as to really, but it's just there's fewer... They would become yeah. the Bengals have never won the Super Bowl. Obviously, they would never become won. The, they become the twenty first different franchise to win a Super Bowl, and they've they been the they've Bowl. been to the Super Bowl three times. And every time, I think up until this point, they had played the Forty ers I believe. So, would have been cool if the Niners could have made it to keep that going. But <laughs> well, let's get to the game then, and kind of make our picks and work through our picks. Before we get to the game, the thing that will precede it immediately will be the national anthem, my favorite bet of the Super Bowl. And I have won the last eight years. I've never lost on the national anthem length. 
This year, it's sung by Mickey Guyton, who I will admit, I have no idea who this is, but I did a little research, and what's interesting is the odds have been ticking up. So at first, when it opened, it was 95 seconds, then it climbed to 100 seconds, and today, it went off the board and came back with an over-under of 104.5 seconds. So obviously I've, there's been some inside information. Well, I find this weird because I think that the only inside information that I'm aware of having come out is that a recording of her rehearsal was released. And I think the recording of her rehearsal clocked in at 74 seconds. Yes. So, so, so this, is, this is what's strange is she is a very fast national anthem singer. So just to give you a few of her national anthems, um, she sang one for the Memorial Day in one minute, 25 seconds. Then she did a country radio seminar at one minute and 30 seconds. So consistently under 90 seconds. She's even been quoted as saying, they call me Quickie Mickey because I sing the national anthem very fast. I hate to break it at her. That's not why they're they're calling her that. (laughs) On an unrelated note, she also sings the national anthem quite quickly. So I'm going for Quickie Mickey with the under here. Yeah, I mean, it's always interesting because basically the only logic then behind taking the over is just that this is the biggest moment ever for her singing the national anthem. And so she'll want to milk it and really... You know, you get every singer kind of trying to show off their vocal range and ability by holding notes and really pushing for it. That's the only argument for going for the over. But when you do have someone who has consistently gone under, it seems weird. I, I would agree with you. But, I mean, overs are more fun. That's the other the only other reason why. So by the time the first drive starts, I could either be really happy with two prop pet wins or really angry and just going to watch the commercials. <laughs> I'd lean then towards unhappy. It will be a touchback and a really long national anthem. <laughs> or even better than the touchback, it will be like kicked out of bounds for a penalty. Oh, that would be terrible. I, or even that thing when, you know, like the returner, steps out of bounds first. That's what I want yeah. to see happen so that you have the hope when you'll see like a short kick kind of bouncing towards, you'll be like, oh, it's definitely going to get returned. And then you'll get them laying out to, to get the penalty. So I, I'll start off about the game and I'm just going to give my quick synopsis and then we can kind of get into more specifics. For me, everything about this game leans towards an easy win for the Rams. They have a very good offense and they have a defense whose primary strength is the main weakness of the Bengals, which is the the line. The defensive line for the Rams is very good at getting to the quarterback and the offensive line for the Bengals is atrocious. And again, Burrow almost broke his leg in half last year getting sacked, had the most sacks again this year, and has, for the most part in the playoffs, been running for his life a lot of drives. With the fact that I think they will get a lot of pressure and they'll still be able to score on offense, I, you would think the Rams should have a comfortable advantage here. But for some reason, 
the Bengals keep winning. Burrow got sacked nine times in the playoffs in one game and still won. So everything leans towards the Rams, but for some reason, the Bengals win. And I honestly think here they're going to pull the upset. And I think the Bengals are going to win this game. I think they're going to outgun them and hold on as long as they could get the ball at the last drive and win on the last drive. I think it's going to be a blowout. I think this is going to be a throwback to the Super Bowls of the 90s when, you know, there was a time when the Super Bowl was almost always a blowout. And I think this is going to be this is going to be reminiscent to me, I think, of that uh, Seahawks Panthers Super Bowl where you kind of talk yourself into this idea that it's a contest and then really quickly it's over and it's just an anticlimax from a sporting perspective perspective. Uh-huh. You're right. And and that's why, you know, like I feel that way, but then I thought that way against the chiefs and somehow they were able to make the chiefs implode and they were able to beat them. You, you know, it's, it's just, there's the something thing, about the, this Bengals team. I just don't think they give a shit and they're going to go out there no matter well, what the score Joe Burrow is claims, Joe Burrow claims that he's less nervous going into this than he was going into his high school championship game with his argument I, being that he has... I believe him. I don't. He might be right I now. Him. I don't believe him when, when the lights really turn on. And that's not a knock on him. I just don't believe that someone will go into the Super Bowl and think there have been other games I've been more nervous for. But... Ultimately, I think what you touched on is the key issue here, and that is that it's just a really bad matchup for the for the uh, Bengals. I mean, uh, Pro Football Focus has the fact that Miller and and Donald are the most prolific postseason pass rushers in the era of analytics. So you're talking about a team that cannot stop the rush, the pass rush coming up against the team that is the best at doing it since those kind of stats were tracked. So I just, I cannot think of a worse matchup in some respects. The only thing that makes me doubt the Rams at all is Matthew Stafford. That's it. It's just the fact that he nearly, I don't think he played that well against the Niners. I just think he didn't play badly. And he made a couple of really big plays, but he still nearly had, the pretty much game ending interception that should have been caught. And he got lucky that he got away with it. And that has completely changed people's perspective. Like that dropped interception was kind of forgotten in the Matthew Stafford post making it to the Super Bowl love fest that we've had to experience for the last two weeks. And if he does that again, he probably won't be as lucky and that probably just will be game over. So, I mean, that's my only issue is just the Stafford element. But at the same time, the Bengals have made mistakes on offense as well. So I don't think this is going to be a turnover-free game from either side. Yeah, that was a question I had for you. I'm going to put this in, in two ways. Tie game, game on the line, minute, minute left in the game, one timeout. Would you rather have Burrow or Stafford leading that drive? I'd probably rather and then the have... second the, the follow up would be would you rather have the Bengals offense or the Rams offense? So I'd probably rather have Burrow and I'd probably I'd definitely rather have McPherson. 
But then the game changing element to me is I would definitely, definitely, definitely want Cooper Cup. And I think that's, and, and look, you and I have spoken at times when it's frustrating, I think both in watching teams play against Cup and Chase this postseason, where there have been third downs where it's like, they're obviously going to go to one of to this player and you don't have them in double coverage. And it's frustrating beyond, I mean, the worst of it being the, the Bucks thinking that their safety is going to pick up Cooper Cup and, and not just trying to actually remove them as an option altogether but still i mean i think you look at cup against the niners in the nfc championship game i think he had 11 catches i think seven of those were on third downs six of them were converted for first downs he's the receiver you want he's the best receiver in the game so much of the chase gets chase is the kind of more eye-catching plays but play in play out i want cooper cup and, and then when you then do throw in Odell Beckham Jr. there as a secondary option, which with his head on straight, Odell Beckham Jr. as a second option is scary. And you saw that kind of against the Niners, just when they are trying to focus in on Cup, his ability to get open at the same time. I want the Rams offense, even if the, what, would, what you'd normally think of being the key in the quarterback, I'd probably rather have Burrow. Yeah, I, I'd rather have Burrow, and I think I'd actually rather have the, the Bengals offense. I think the the threesome of Boyd, Higgins, and Jamar Chase is a is a pretty unstoppable receivers. The may, I think the main issue is can the offensive line hold up long enough for one of them to get open, and that that would be the main concern for for the Bengals offense, especially when you know that they're going to throw the ball. So you have you know you have that Rams. <laughs> defense just itching to get to the quarterback. That's going to be scary. If if they go down and they have to throw the ball and you tell Aaron Donald, just rush, you know, don't worry about the run. Tell Floyd, don't worry about the run. Tell Von Miller, don't worry about the run. That's going to be scary for, for Burrow. So that's something they need to hope that they don't get behind. But I, I really like the Bengals offense. I think it's, it's super solid. The skill positions are, are super solid, but I agree. Cup is the best, best receiver in the game. Getting to the OBJ, I think that would be a nice prop bet. Can I bet OBJ to record a drop? Because I've watched him play in big games before, and he gets very nervous in big games. And I would not be surprised to see an early drop by Beckham. Like a first quarter, seven yard out, that would be a first down. He just drops. An interesting prop. Probably does exist. But yeah, and and also, I mean... From an analytics perspective, right? And you're usually the stat guy. That's your claim to fame. But I mean, the Bengals just come out on, come out second on pretty much every area. They are the worst team from a DVOA perspective to have ever made the Super Bowl. So DVOA, for those not familiar, is defense adjusted value over average. So it's basically trying to factor in your defensive performance relative to the strength of the offenses that you have played against. So kind of trying to assess performance versus strength of schedule and opponent to try and take the actual raw numbers to a higher level. And on that basis, this Bengals team is the worst in Super Bowl history to have made it this far. I, I, I just, 
I don't know. Just everything. And again, here's the issue. I've doubted the Bengals at every stage of the postseason and even at moments during the regular season. So I'm probably not the best person in terms of assessing this team's strengths and qualities. But I don't think... I think they've been second best in certainly the last two games that they've played and are lucky to have won. And they're only here because other teams have made mistakes is genuinely kind of how I feel. Whereas the Rams have definitely been aided by mistakes of other teams, like by the Bucks having a really terrible first half, by the Niners having a pretty bad second half, but fundamental and by the Cardinals, whatever it was the Cardinals were doing for that game. But fundamentally, they've kind of played well for at least the key moments of all of their games. And I think they're here a little bit more on merit than the Bengals are. Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything you're saying. But I think at some point, the but they keep winning has to matter and it has to account for something. And maybe it's the fact that the Bengals are, no matter what situation they're in, they're always a little more loose not as nervous, you know, kind of just ready to air it out and do whatever needs to be done to catch back up. Whereas that's another major issue I have with the Rams is you have Stafford, who's slightly notorious for making some bonehead plays. And then you have McVay, who clenched up worse than any head coach has in the past 10, 15 years with with his Super Bowl performance last time. So are you going to get another one of those where McVay kind of just out tries to outthink himself and puts himself out of the game. I, I don't know, you know. Maybe, but but then that's in some expense experience is an advantage Rams as well. The Bengals only have one player who's ever been to the Super Bowl before. And so you are talking about a team here that's totally unfamiliar with the experience. Not only in terms of the significance of the game and the pressure that can come with it, but also as everyone likes to talk about each year just the difference in the experience, the longer halftime show. The fact that you have to handle the fact that it's a 30 minute halftime break instead of a 15 minute and how different that how different that can be in terms of managing your energy levels and trying to kind of get yourself ready for a second half and not having, you know, like getting too worked up at the wrong moment. So the fact that the Rams three years ago went to the Super Bowl with obviously the same head coach and a number of the same players and put in a pretty bad performance. Not defensively, though. And I guess this would be the bigger issue is defensively, they still turned up for that game. It was just the offense that wasn't great, and that quarterback's gone. So I think that's a, still a, a positive for them, that they've kind of been there and done that mostly. So you think blowout? I'll say the Rams win by 10-plus points. Wow. I'm not, I'm not going to say they win... 50 to 20, you know, like I'm not going to go blow out, blow out, but I don't think, I think it will be a double digits victory. Yeah. There's a good bet. Rams win by 10 or more. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go 27, 24 Bengals. I'm going to, I'm going to ride the hot streak that they've been on and just feel that they're just going to come through. I will say 34-20 Rams. Scorigami. It's not. That's definitely not a scorigami. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Might be a Super Bowl score. I'm going to say two to one. That could be a scorigami. <laughs> yeah. All right. 
you have anything else about the Super Bowl? I mean, it's it. We've been talking about these teams for six weeks now, so there's not much, you know, that we haven't discussed in the past about, you know, what makes these teams great. And I will like I I've obviously one of the key matchups of this game will be the Jalen Ramsey versus Jamar Chase matchup, and that will be interesting. Uh, what's been surprising is that they've both been quite tame with the answers to questions they've gotten about going against each other. And they've both been pretty complimentary about each other, which is surprising, I guess more on the Jalen Ramsey side. Uh, But I would have expected Ramsey to kind of give a little more trash talk into it, but he has been quite complimentary and and Jamar Chase has as well. And they kind of both just said, you know, we're going to have to be the better player and see who wins. So that will be a very interesting matchup to see if they decide to lock him up with Ramsey the entire time, or if the fact that they have three good wide receivers, they just kind of play their sides and play their defense. Yeah, no, it's going to be an interesting test. And look, I think that's then, the, whilst this is a kind of underwhelming Super Bowl from some, in some respects, I do think there are interesting matchups across the field. So even though you may not get into it too much from the team versus team perspective, you can in terms of let's see how cup versus chase like let's see who wins that battle let's see the young gun versus the the player who spent most of his career kind of toiling away in mediocrity let's see how that goes the two hotshot young head coaches let's see how they go up against each other i do think you can kind of focus on elements of the game and get more interested in those um, and also I'll, I'll kind of wrap it up with saying I, I, sometimes I think in big games, the best way to decide it, to decide who you think is going to win is who has the best player. And that's a little bit harder to do in football because there's multiple facets to the game. And unless it's a quarterback, how much influence can they really have at times? But I think Aaron Donald is head and shoulders, the best player and his respective position on this field and will have an ability to influence the outcome of the game directly. So I think that's just another reason to have confidence in the Rams. Yeah, it's very true. I I think a lot in my closing statement will be for the Bengals to win, they are obviously going to have to address the pass rush by the Rams, hopefully by calling a lot of, you know, quick, quick screens, quick plays, some draws, things like that to kind of neutralize that rush. Because if they get down early, Unlike the Chiefs when they were down early, the Chiefs have an okay defense and their pass rush isn't nearly as good as what the Rams pass rush is. So if they get down, that will be that will be disastrous. So I think they're going to have to neutralize that that line and kind of call a lot of those nice wide receiver screens to to Higgins and to Chase, just get them the ball, let them do their thing and avoid Burrow getting sacked and hit and pressured and and that that will, if if that happens early, I think there's a good chance the Bengals can can pull off the upset here. But if you know those first three drives are trying to set up these five seven step drops and Burrow's getting tons of pressure, it's not going to look good. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. Yeah. On that note, I should probably I got to head off. I got to pick Ollie up. I think he's been listening to the podcast on his travels, but. Have to uh, pick him up at the train station so he doesn't get too lost. Let the debauchery begin. (laughs) Exactly. All right, I'll talk to you later. 
Cheerio.